Anyway, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Let's read out of Psalm 103, verse 1. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, if we did nothing else out of this entire series that we have been doing here for several months now, if we did nothing else but just took this path and believed it word for word and applied the application here to our lives, man, we would be different folks. We would be completely different because suddenly we would look at this and these are the words of King David, a man after God's own heart, and yet he penned these words as a psalm, as a, as a time of worship. And he says, forget not the benefits of God. And as you've noticed, as we begin to turn our attentions a little bit, we have been focused on communion or what we call communion. And understanding what that is, because it is so crucial to make a distinction between the Lord's body and the Lord's blood. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but we are made whole by the body that was broken for us. That is something that has been lost in the church. And so I want you guys to understand why we're doing this. I don't ever want community to be a religious exercise, something that we just simply do or emotion that we go through. We have got to understand what was happening. And so in that, as you've noticed, that Jesus was a part of the Passover meals where he put this in. It was a part of the Seder, that this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And then the, the cup after supper, the cup of redemption and the Passover meal, and, and was the shedding of his blood. And so Jesus was taking care of everything. This is unpopular teaching. Isn't it amazing how far some will go to say, no, 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 God, that's not what that means. God doesn't heal. Some will say that God doesn't heal anymore. Some will say God will heal if it's His will, that He can. But what kind of God is a God that can but won't? That's not the God. The God that, that could is the one who sent His Son. I mean, He could have redeemed our life from destruction, but He didn't, did He? Of course He did. You see, we're looking at the attributes and characters of God. We've got to see Him for who He is. And so when Jesus said this as a part of the Seder meal, He's saying, listen, I want you to do this. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Now, what does that mean? Does He mean that every time you have Passover, I want you to do this? So annually, once a year, when you take over the Passover, you're doing this in remembrance of what I have done. In one part, yes, that is what He meant. Because the Passover was what? It was a celebration, a remembrance, a memorial of what God had done in Egypt, bringing the people out, bringing them into the promised land, which is what was supposed to happen immediately. They chose not to go there, but that's what was supposed to have happened. So that's what they were remembering, and now God or Jesus is saying, listen, now you're going to do this in remembrance of who I am and what I have done. So there is that part, but is it secluded to one time a year? Some churches, that's all they do. Some churches do it once a quarter. Some churches do it once a month. Some churches do it every week. The question is, is when do we do it? Well, we, as I showed you guys last week, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, it says, And with many other words he testified, it's talking about Peter, and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word and were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now, if you remember, as I was saying, this is right after the giving of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up, gives this amazing sermon, 3,000 people come to Christ. And there's a, a yin and yang, if you will, here. At the giving of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, 3,000 people come to the Lord. At the giving of the law, Mount Sinai, 3,000 people went to death because they already broke the commandments of the Lord. 
Verse 42, and then they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of prayer or bread and in prayers. Now, what does that mean? Well, we say, well, what was the, the steadfast in the apostles' doctrine? Well, what was the apostles' doctrine? Well, we know what that was because Paul tells us that Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again. It was the teachings of Jesus and what he had done. That was the apostles' doctrine, so they stayed steadfastly in that. They also stayed steadfastly in fellowship. That's why Paul says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Our culture today does not believe that. Our culture today believes, well, I can be right with God without going to church. That is true. But can you grow in God without going to church? Not really. You can put yourself on an island for a time, but eventually you need the body. There's a reason. Cut off your pinky toe. See how long it lasts. Not very long. So there's that part. But what about the breaking of bread? What is that? They had fellowship meals. And I want you to understand this because the practice that we have today of what we call communion, some call it the Eucharist. That's a Catholic term, but it just means uh, fellowship. But, but what it is today is not what it was then. Breaking of bread. What do we hear or think when we hear that? We think, oh, they were sharing food. And they were. It was meals. But it was a part of what they did. Every time that they came together, they would break bread in remembrance of what the Lord had done. And they would pray, of course. So what are they doing? They're kind of having church. Now, this is a time that there was no persecution on the church. That hadn't started yet. That's to come, but it hasn't started yet. Verse 43, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. So what does that mean? Every day they came together in the temple. They're later not going to be able to do that, but they can right now. They would break bread from house to house every day. They would go. They would eat their food with gladness and with simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You see, every day they got together and they broke bread. We believe that every day when they got together, they were doing what we call communion. Every single day. Why? As often as you do this. Do this in remembrance of me. He didn't put a limitation on that. Also in Acts chapter 20, I read this last week in verse 7, it says, Now, on the first day of the week, which is which day? That's Sunday. When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Why did they come together? It wasn't a potluck. They came together as the church. They came together as the body of Christ on the first day of the week. They also came together multiple other days of the week. But when they came together, they came together with one purpose. It was the breaking of bread. It was part of a fellowship meal that they would break the bread, they would drink the wine in remembrance of what the Lord had done. See, what happened is this began to get a little out of control. As you, we, we read in, in 1 Corinthians 11 multiple times, we're not going to read it today because we're going a little different direction today, but multiple times that Paul is getting on to them for the way that they're doing. You're like, some of you guys are getting drunk, some of you guys are, are just here for the meal. Eat at home. That's not the point. When you come together for the Lord's Supper, do it the right way. Check yourself. And there was a consequence to them not. So when they came together, they were doing this as worship. But later, the meal part kind of went away. And then to simplify it, they went to just the bread and the wine as a part of the service. It became robotic. 
The reason in the Eucharist and the Mass that they believe that they are re-crucifying Christ was because of Roman pressure. The Romans wanted them to sacrifice living things to the gods. And so as to appease them, to get them off their back, they said, well, that's what we're doing. Every time we do this, we're sacrificing Christ once again. And it's stuck. But that's not what Jesus was saying. You see, it was always about a memorial. The Passover was a memorial. The rainbow was a memorial. Everything in Scripture was a memorial about the goodness of God and what He had done. But last week, I stopped here in verse 7. And Dustin, who's not here today, he's at a family thing, came up to me. He's like, did you read past that? Now, I broke my own rules, right? I tell you guys all the time, never read a verse. Read 20 before and 20 after. But I had this verse in my head because I knew where I was going, so I didn't go back and read it. I just stopped. But look what happened after this immediately in verse 8. There were many lamps. Remember, he preached his message until midnight. How many of you guys are suddenly thankful for me, right? I'll get you out of here in a fair amount of time. Okay. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. And he was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. How's that for you? Paul preached him to death. Okay? Now, I put some of y'all to sleep, but nobody's died yet, so I'm one up on Paul. Verse 10, but Paul went down, he fell on him, and embracing him said, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now, this is something just like Elisha had done. He went and laid on the young man, and his life came back into him. This, was, this young man was dead. It wasn't as if he was dead. That is how the language reads. He was dead. Paul brings him back to life, and what was their response? Verse 11, now when he had come up, had broken bread, and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. That means they were pretty excited. Okay? So what was their response? They came in, and they broke bread. They remembered what the Lord has done. Why? Because his body was broken for Eutychus. It was broken for him. And they were thankful that his life was back in him. You know, there are all of these things that are here. All of these things that we can look at that we overread and we're like, okay, well, that's not what it's talking about. We assume we know what it means. But here's the bottom line. They had communion, or what we call communion, the fellowship meal, every single day. They did it in their homes. Remember, the Passover meal was not a corporate thing. It was a family thing. They did it themselves. We should be doing the same. There is something about the body of Jesus being broken for our benefit that makes our bodies whole. How do we know that? We know that because we are with Christ, that the Spirit that raised Him from the dead dwells in us and gives life to our mortal bodies. Now the question is, how does that happen? How do we get the Spirit of Christ in us? The Holy Spirit. We know in John chapter 7, verse 37, I read this a couple weeks ago. It says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now stop. What is happening here? This is the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Because that is the great day of the feast, the last day. It's the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles where the high priest would go down there and get two pitchers of living water and would come up and pour it on the altar of the temple saying, this is the living water. Jesus comes out, we know what's going on because we know what the terminology means, comes out and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He just said, you're no longer going to need this priest. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39 tells us exactly what he's talking about. This he spoke concerning the Spirit, 
whom those believing in Him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, obviously, John knows what's coming. He knows the beginning from the end here because he was a part of this. But what is going on here? So you see, they're under a different covenant. The things that they did was to remember to keep that covenant. Remember we talked about the seats, the hem of the garment that they had. I've got the tallit here, but, but they would have these things that was to remind them, we've got to keep these commandments. We got, there were 613 uh, uh, different commandments that they had to keep, and these things would help them remember to do that. They had all these laws in place to remember the Sabbath, and there was all these things that they had to do. And so Jesus is coming in here and he's saying, listen, this is going to change because he is now saying, how did the living water get poured onto the altar as a part of the temple? The high priest, and only the high priest. Jesus is saying, he who believes in me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. What is going to become the temple of God? It's you and I. It's the believers. That spirit will dwell in us. Thus, the need for the temple, which was a part of that Mosaic law, and the need for the priesthood is going to change. You see, Jesus is laying the foundation for a change in the covenant, as you guys will see here shortly. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, he says this, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Okay, so Jesus just said, now listen, all the stuff that was written in basically what we call the Old Testament has to be fulfilled. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Witnesses of what things? Of His death, burial, and resurrection. These were people that were there when this all happened. Verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. What is the promise of the Father? It's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus had just told these guys, this is part of that Emmaus road, he opens their eyes to the Scripture. Suddenly, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, they realize that this was all talking about him. And Jesus said, listen, it had to be, like I had to suffer. I had to die. I had to be resurrected the third day. Now we know why. Because it was fulfillment of those feasts of Passover of unleavened bread. What was the last one? First fruits. It was all of it had to be fulfilled and that's what he was doing. And so you're going to go and preach a message of repentance and remission of sins to all nations, but where are you going to start? You start at home. There's a sermon right there. Boy, we love going out into all the world. We hate going into the neighborhoods. We're willing to go anywhere, send anybody, send any amount of money we can to preach the gospel around the world, and yet we can't take 20 minutes out of our day to go talk to our neighbor. I don't want to get off on a tangent. The promise of the Father was the Holy Spirit. He was going to come. In John chapter 20, we see something interesting, because he's going to tell these guys, you need to go to Jerusalem. In John chapter 20, verse 19 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, now what day is that? That's Sunday. When the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now this reads as if the doors were shut and locked, and all of a sudden, hey, there's Jesus standing here. How did he get here? 
I don't know. Verse 21, so then Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So Jesus was on a mission. Now he's given them a mission. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I'll explain that in a minute. But let's look at this. We know, because we've read before, that the Holy Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2. Right? That's when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. But here at the end of John, Jesus is getting ready to send. And he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So why did they need to go to Jerusalem to wait until the day of Pentecost? in order to receive the Holy Spirit if Jesus had already given them the Holy Spirit. There's a reason for that, and the reason is there's two different things that are happening here. We're going to get to that here in a week or two. But for right now, we're looking at the purpose of this. It's the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If he retains the sin of any, they are retained. Why does he say that? Well, because they were to preach a message of reconciliation. And so they can tell them boldly, that your sins are forgiven if you receive Christ. If you reject Him, so it doesn't matter what sacrifices you're making anymore. If you reject the Messiah, your sins are retained. Okay? So that's what's happening there. Where do we get this idea? Why is this a big deal? Where did the promise of the Father come in? Did Jesus just show up? It's like, hey, I just want you to know, y'all, that my dad said I can give Him to you. It's good news for you. No, this was laid out way ahead of time. You see, we're talking about covenants. Underneath the Mosaic Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody and then He would live. He never stayed. He would come on somebody, He would empower them for a time, and then He would leave. At this point in time, where Jesus is, He's now breathed on them, the disciples have them. Is the presence of God in the temple? No. The presence of God isn't in the temple directly. He had left. The presence of God was on earth when Jesus got here. You have to remember back, I think it's in Ezekiel, where the presence of the Lord had left the temple, went up to Mount Sinai, and left. And now the presence of God is standing here in Jesus, and then we are endued with power from on high by the Holy Spirit. But you've got the Spirit within and the Spirit upon as two different things. We will see this here in coming weeks. But this part of it as part of the covenant, in other words, the promise, is in Ezekiel 36, verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the country. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. Why did he do that? that because he told them they would this is what's going to happen guys if you don't if you don't honor me if you don't worship me if you sacrifice to any other god you will face judgment if you don't you will be blessed so he was following through with what he said he would do verse 20 when they came to the nations wherever they went they profaned my holy name when they said to them these are the people of the lord and yet they have gone out of his land but i had concern for my holy name which the house of israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went therefore say to the house of israel thus says the lord god i do not do this for your sake O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, For the, says the Lord God. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. This has happened multiple times. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is all a part of the new covenant. First, he had to bring them back into the land. Then he had to sprinkle them clean, forgive them for what they had done. You see, the purpose of Israel being set apart in their Sabbath keeping and the sacrifices they were doing and all of the other things was to show that Yahweh was the true God and all these other gods were false. And they were to draw people to them. And yet, they went around doing what everybody else had done. They had profaned the name of God, thus he was not respected in the nations around them. So they get scattered and people are sitting there saying like, these are the people of God, this is the God, he can't even keep the people in his land. So God said this for my name's sake that I'm going to do this. And ultimately we're talking about a new covenant that's coming. This new covenant that is in his blood, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he said that I will put my spirit within you and that will cause you to walk in my statutes. There's a change that's coming. In Jeremiah 31 and 30, verse 31 is where we see this also. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband of them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more we've got a change that's coming that change is in the moment that Jesus said this is the new covenant in my blood when the blood of Christ was shed the covenant was ratified it was now fully put into place it's not like the covenant of Moses There was two covenants. You've got the Mosaic one, which was between God and the nation of Israel. And if Israel obeyed the commandments, then they would be blessed. If not, then they wouldn't be. And they had all these other things that they had to do. He said, I'm going to give you a covenant that's not going to be like that. There's no strings attached to it. Once you enter it, you can't exit it. We see this reiterated once again in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant, talking about the Mosaic one, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more what did we just read we just read Jeremiah 31 now one thing I'll tell you it wasn't like the writer of Hebrews who I happen to believe is Paul was carrying these giant scrolls around with them they knew this stuff and verse 13 he says in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away Now, he is saying that this old covenant is done. 
And it's getting ready to vanish away. Now, if you remember, we talked through the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night. That what does that mean? The judgment on the temple is coming. With no temple, you cannot keep the commands of God because you cannot sacrifice. So the temple gets destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. Jesus has said that he went into Jerusalem with tears in his eyes. He said, this is what's going to happen. No stone will be upon another. Because of judgment of them not recognizing the times that were coming when Jesus was there. And so... In all of this, there is a new covenant. But what did it take? You see, how do you just throw out an old covenant? Because time and time again, God said, you will be my people. I will be your God. You keep my commandments, you'll be blessed. You don't, you'll be cursed. That covenant was put in place for a reason. It was put in place so that they could go and and just be blessed by God and be a light to the other nations. And yet they chose not to. And so God said, I've divorced you. You're a harlot. You've done all these things, and yet he always kept a remnant. And now he's going to bring a new covenant. And the question is, is how does one covenant supersede another? Why didn't God just make the new covenant to begin with? Why didn't he just start it out this way? You see, there's a series of steps that took place in order to get us to where we are today. The thing that we do in remembrance of what Jesus had done is remembering that the work of the cross that was taking place. We do that to remember what this is because that is the new covenant that, they were, that we are in. So, in order to understand this, we've got to do a little bit of background work. Now, some of you guys will understand this and some of you guys, this will be new information. But we've got to see what was taking place in order for Jesus to have the right to come in and just set up a new covenant. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, he's Jesus. He can come in and do whatever he wants. No, he can't because he follows the prescribed procedures that he laid out. If that was true, then he would not have given man free will. He wouldn't have said, hey, listen, don't eat of that tree. You can do anything else, don't eat of that tree. He wouldn't have given an opportunity to sin. He also would have, if they had sinned, he would have just come and said, don't worry, guys, I got this. There's a reason Jesus had to die. There's a reason the blood had to be shed. God is going to follow exactly the way that he is set up. He works in predictable patterns, as I've said many times, and not in mysterious ways. So we're going to start here in Luke chapter 1. And I want you to follow this closely. I know this is going to be new information. I'm trying not to go too fast. I'm trying not to like make you drink out of a fire hose today, but just bear with me. We have to understand what was going on at the time of Christ's birth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch... As many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to them, will deliver them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, and that you may know the certainty of those things in which you are instructed. So what's happening? This is Luke. Luke was believed to be a Gentile doctor. Some say he wasn't. I don't know. wasn't there. Don't really care. Here's the thing. He writes in his type of Hebrew that he was an educated man. There's no question about that. And so he's saying that I am going to write a narrative for whom? This guy named Theophilus, who was a higher up. And he says, I'm going to write you an orderly account because we need to understand these things. An orderly account? Why did he say that? Well, Matthew's account of the gospel is not written in order. It's thematic. It's written based on themes. Oh, here's what Jesus did in this situation dealing with that. Here, Lucas said, I'm going to write this down, how it happened. He's going on a timeline. Verse 5, 
There was in the days of Herod a king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, out of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense. And when he went into the temple of the Lord, the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, let me explain what's happening here. We need to understand who is Zachariah, or Zacharias, however you want to say it, and Elizabeth. Zacharias was obviously a priest. In order to be a priest, what did you have to be? You had to be out of the tribe of Levi. The Levites were the priests serving the temple. It says that he was of the division of Abijah. Who was Abijah? Abijah was one of the sons of Aaron. Who was Aaron? Moses' brother, the high priest. So we know because of this information that Zacharias is of the lineage of Aaron, who was the high priest. Then we have his wife, Elizabeth, who was what? A daughter of Aaron. So we know that both of these people come from the lineage of Aaron. You could be a priest and be of the tribe of Levi, but to be high priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. There was no other way. You didn't earn your right into it. You were there by birth and then appointed by God because obviously there was lots of family that were of the line of Aaron. Not every one of them was going to serve as high priest. So, they were both righteous before God. They walked in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord. They were blameless, just like a high priest should. We also see that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. Now, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal to us, but back then, it was a major deal. Most of the time, if a woman was barren, the man would divorce her, and go and marry somebody else so that he could have children. Because for a woman to not be able to bear a child brought shame on her and the entire family. We also see that they're old, right? They're advanced in years. So, while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense. What does all of that mean? Well, because since the time that they had come out of exile, there were so many of them. They had one job, they served the temple. But there's so many in this priesthood that not everybody can be in there working at the same time. So they would work twice a year, one week each term. And they would have these different divisions. He was of the division of Abijah because that was his family line. And so the lot would fall on, well, what are you going to do with your week on? In this case, the lot, so the rolling of the dice... He gets to burn the incense. So that's the customs that's going on. That's what's happening here. That's why that's saying it that way. It was his turn to be in the temple. Verse 11. Then, so while he's in the temple, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense, which is right up against the veil. That was where the high priest would go in every year. And he would take the incense, put it in this thing, and he would lift it up in the air. As the smoke filled the room, it was a a symbol of the presence of God, and he would walk through the veil on the Day of Atonement one time per year. So, this angel is standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. I think we can understand that. Imagine you're just going about your business, and there's an angel before you, okay? 
But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you should call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom uh, of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, here Zacharias is having a moment that is very similar to Abraham. Abraham had an angel appear for him and said, hey, you're going to have a son. Sarah thought that was funny. Why? Because they were old. But Zacharias believed it. You're going to have a son. His name's going to be John. Boy, don't you wish that's how it worked when you're naming kids? There are more arguments about naming children than anything else. His name's going to be John. You're going to be joyful. You're going to be glad. Uh, And many are going to rejoice at his birth. There's a reason for that. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what's happening? They're making a Nazarite vow. That means he will touch nothing. He will be a servant to the Lord. He will do that what what he's told to do. He's filled with the Spirit even at his mother's womb. And he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to God. He's going to go and he's going to prepare the people for the Lord. Zacharias knew exactly what this meant. But here's the thing. Zacharias is serving in the temple. At this time, there was a high priest, a man named Annas, and later his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Now, to be the high priest, you would have to be of the line of Aaron. Neither of these men really were. It was also appointed by the Roman government because as you saw that Herod was there. Herod was a tetrarch. They put him in charge over this area. He was trying to win the favor of the Jews so he would allow them to do some different things and make the people happy. But they appointed who was going to be high priest. The Roman government. And so why did they do that? Because it was control. They can control the people that way. That means that the high priest was not appointed by God in this case. And that's what I want to point out today. The question is, if he shouldn't have been high priest, then who should have been? Here you've got a man, which is one of the qualifications of being high priest. You had to be a man. You had to be a son of Abraham, so you couldn't be an outsider. You couldn't have been what they call a proselyte Jew. You had to be a Levite, and you had to be a descendant of Aaron. And so here you have the qualifications for Zacharias meets all of those, which also means who meets all of those? John. And John is being set apart from birth, which many times the high priest would be. And he takes this special appointed son. They take a Nazarite vow, and he's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying to you is, in my opinion, and that's what it is, is the high priest was supposed to have been John the Baptist. He wasn't allowed to be. You see, the people had gotten away from the ways of the Lord. They were doing their own thing because the Pharisees were in control. And the Pharisees really didn't want what God wanted. They wanted what they had. They had a good thing going. People did what they said. They were respected. People were giving them money. They were milking the uh, the temple. You know about the temple and the money changers? That was put on by Caiaphas. The high priest, he had this whole scheme going where people come in there and they had to make a sacrifice and they had no choice but to get what they were told to give. I mean, what do you do? You're stuck. It's kind of like, you know, when we have gas shortages during a a, a national crisis or something like that and the gas goes up to seven, eight bucks a gallon. That's essentially what's happening. You have no choice. You want it, you got to pay it. That's what Jesus chased them out of there with whips. So 
my postulation here is I believe that Zacharias should have been in line for the high priest and certainly his son John. That's important, and I'll show you why. Now, let's go to Luke chapter 3. We're going to jump ahead a little bit. We're going to get past the time of the birth of Christ. We kind of know how that story uh, works because if you've ever been alive during Christmas in America, you've heard the story. So it's going to fast forward a little bit. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Idaria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, when Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. So what I just told you, who these people were. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Okay, The word of the Lord comes to him. And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remissions of sin. Now, we have to understand that word. Because baptism means immersion. And they would immerse them as a, it's called a mikvah. They would have to mikvah all the time. The high priest, before he would go in there and do any sacrifice, he would mikvah. They would cleanse himself. They would wash in living water. What is living water? It's moving water. Not stagnant water, it's moving water. If I had a bucket of water and it was sitting outside, that is not living water, it is stagnant water. But if one raindrop hit it, because that's living water, now they consider the whole thing clean. So, he is out there preaching a baptism of repentance. Is he preaching the message that the leadership was? No. Because their message was, you come to us, you bring us your sacrifices. We'll do this for you. You need us. He's going a different direction. Verse 4, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He's the one that is going out there preparing the way for the Lord. He's preaching a message that way when Jesus gets here, it's like, hey, the fulfillment of that message is standing here. Verse 7, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, where is John doing most of his work? It's in the Jordan River. You've got people coming to him and they're saying, well, you know what? We're the seed of Abraham. Yeah, we'll, we'll go with this message that works. And he said, no, 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 no. That's not what this is. Because Jesus is going to point this out later. It's all in here. Don't come in here and get wet. Getting wet doesn't solve your problems. You need to show fruits worthy of repentance. And then he says, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. What stones is he talking about? Well, where's he at? He's at the Jordan River. And when the Children of Israel passed through the promised land. What did they do? They set up a memorial of 12 stones. One's in the river, one's on the banks of the river, so that they would always remember that God brought His people through dry land. I think that's the stones He's talking about. The memorial. He said, God will raise them up out of this. There's something bigger that's going on here. And even now the axe is laid at the fruit of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, well, what should we do? And he answered said, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said, well, what should we do? He said, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Because they weren't. If they were supposed to collect a dollar, they collect three. They were ripping people off. And the people had no choice but to pay. 
Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, well, what should we do? And he said, do not imitate, int- intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Why did he say that? Because these soldiers would go in there and say, oh, I saw you doing whatever. And they would bribe them and they would pay them off. He's bringing some correction. Verse 15, now as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. Now remember, it keeps saying the Christ because that means the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. John answers saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. You've got to remember how they did things. They would go in there as they were separating the wheat from the chaff. They would, on the threshing floor, they would scoop it. They'd throw it up in the air, and the chaff, which was lighter, would blow out, and the wheat would fall to the ground. That's how they separated, and then they would burn it. And with many other exhortation, he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, there was some bad stuff going on there, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added to this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. And we know what ultimately happens. John gets beheaded for this. So this is what's coming, okay? This is what's going on. John is there. He's doing his job. He is getting on to them. He's like, listen, you think you're right with God because you're going through these motions. You're doing what these people are telling you. I'm telling you that's not the case. And then the people are like, this has got to be the Messiah. Do you realize that John wasn't the first person that they thought might be the Messiah? Do you realize that Jesus wasn't the first person that people thought would be the Messiah? Do you realize that to this day that they have people that they have believed might have been the Messiah? And it's still going on because they've rejected Jesus. Now, this is what's happening. He's getting on to them. But look at verse 21. When all the people were baptized... It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. This is a time where the Lord is speaking publicly. This hasn't happened in 400 years. The words of the prophets had been shut up. God was silent. That's that period between Malachi and Matthew. It's a time where God hasn't spoken and suddenly you have this voice crying out of the wilderness where the word of the Lord had come to him and they hear this. Now, I'm going to say this. I'm pointing this out here. Many believe that the Holy Spirit looks like a dove and he came down. It says he descended in bodily form and it was like a dove upon him. He didn't look like a dove. That's not what it's saying. All the flannel graphs and the posters that we've had for years and years are wrong. The worst ones are where the dove's coming down and the dove's on fire because he comes with Holy Spirit and with fire. Like, that's just weird. I don't know who came up with that idea, but that's bad. So, we see that Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and we see this pronouncement made. Now, let's look at John. In chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, and he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. So John is telling these guys, this is him. That's the Lamb of God. He's the one that takes away the sins, not me. I prepared the way. Verse 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. Those are bold words. Remember what I told you before? The Holy Spirit would come upon people, but he would also leave. 
I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You see, the Lord had told John that when you see this happen, that's the guy. And John is just giving testimony of this. He's the Son of God. I watched this happen. But then in Matthew chapter 3, we get a little different take on this. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he hallowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see, this Matthew gives us a little different piece of information here. Because John's arguing with Jesus. You're coming to me to be baptized, but I need to be baptized by you. I mean, it's true, right? He knows that when the Messiah comes, He's the one that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He knows that He is the one that's the Lamb of God and He's going to forgive sins and yet you're coming to Me. But Jesus says you have to do this because it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now what did Jesus say? I did not come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. It's Matthew chapter 5. Here, he's saying, I have to be baptized by you in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, some will say that, well, yeah, in order to be right with God, you have to be baptized. That's, no, that's not right. In order to be right with God, you have to be born again, and you should be baptized. They're mutually exclusive. But that's not what's happening here. Because I want to show you something in Leviticus chapter 8. Remember what we're talking about. We're making a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. In Leviticus chapter 8, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments of the anointing oil, a bull as the sin offering, two rams and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather all the congregation together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and Moses said to the congregation, This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Now watch verse 6. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. That word washed is mikvah. He took them, the high priestly lineage, and he mikvah them. Who was Moses? He was a deliverer. He was a type of Christ, cleansing Aaron and setting them apart for the work of the ministry, of them being the high priest. I believe that John was the anointed high priest of God, not able to serve in the temple because of these other things. When Jesus came to him, John's like, I need to be baptized by you. He says, no, 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 this has to be done. I'm telling you, this is my take on this, is that in the moment of that baptism, you have a passing of the guard between the old covenant and the new covenant. Because what do we know? We know in the, according to the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our great high priest. How can that be? Because in order to be high priest, what did you have to be? Of the line of Aaron. You had to be a Levite, and you had to be of the lineage of Aaron. Was Jesus those things? No, he was not. He was of the line of David from the house of Benjamin. So he doesn't qualify as high priest. 
However, it says that he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What do we know about Melchizedek? Melchizedek was just kind of there. It doesn't tell us anything about his lineage except that he was appointed by God. If John the Baptist was supposed to be the high priest, and the moment of that baptism, just like when Moses set them apart, he is now passing the baton to Jesus as that great high priest, thus allowing the beginning of the new covenant to come into play. He cannot be a new covenant. There can't be one if the old is still in play. Remember what we said? The old is vanishing away. I believe that this is the beginning of this. Now, why do I say this? I want you to look at Luke chapter 16. I've got it up here. I didn't put it in my notes. We're going to start in verse 14. Now, look at what this says. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, as I told you what they were doing, some of the schemes they had going on, also heard all these things and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. When the law and the prophets cease, it was with John. When did we see sort of a passing of the guard? The moment of Jesus' baptism. What I'm telling you, is that priestly garment, so to speak, was then laid on Jesus. Because how else could Jesus go into the temple as the perfect offerer and the perfect offering making sacrifice for us? You guys see how this is working? We're laying a foundation here because this is very crucial. Because there's the promise of the Father at stake. We're asking whatever happened to the power of God. What I'm telling you, it has everything to do with the Holy Spirit because there's so much misunderstanding about who He is and what He does. Some people ignore Him and some people go nuts. But this is all foundational getting to the point of this. You see, when we do this in remembrance of Him, we're remembering everything and we remember we have a great high priest and Jesus fulfilling that covenant and laying out this new one that we have the promise of the Father. Forget not His benefits. One of those is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So we get into this. This is the kind of direction we're going to go now. As we get into this, you guys are going to learn who He is, what He does, and why He's important. Because truthfully, most of the time we ignore Him.